The only song I could think of was I'll Fly Away. Now, that's either because it was a funeral or because at that moment I would have given a kidney to fly away. Um, That was the only song I could think of. I couldn't think of anything else. And so I opened my mouth because God was not kind enough to take me to his celestial shore. I opened my mouth and started a very impromptu solo of I'll Fly Away and an impromptu funeral for a man who died anything but promptly. Now, an impromptu funeral, how does that happen? Well, this is West Texas, and I'll tell you, nothing should should surprise you in West Texas. Uh, It doesn't surprise me anymore, including the time one of our members showed up on Sunday morning without his wife and announced to the whole congregation, she's got the diarrhea. It's West Texas. How does an impromptu funeral happen? Well, I'm still... Wondering that myself, we had a, a lady in our congregation. She had a father who was well older, and he was he was dying in a town about two hours away. Uh, he was very sick. The writing had been on the wall for a long time, and arrangements because of that had for a long time been made. And so she told me when he passed, the service is going to be in this town two hours away. But two days later, we're going to do a graveside here in our little town of Cottonwood. We'd like for you to show up at the graveside and say a few words. So I showed up on Tuesday afternoon, and there were over a hundred locals gathered for this graveside service. And so his daughter, feeling compelled to offer a little bit more for all these people who have gathered, ushered everybody into the town center. And she pulled me aside as we were walking in and said, Eric, uh, why don't you lead a few songs and say a few prayers, make a proper service out of this? If you're wondering, don't do that to me. Do it to Brescian. Do it to anybody else, not to me. So in the time I had to walk from the front door of the town center to the pulpit, I suddenly had a funeral to put together. And the only song I could think of was I'll Fly Away. So I had everybody open their songbooks to 162. That's 162. And I blew on the pitch pipe, which, like I've told you before, doesn't make a difference. Because the note I blow on the pitch pipe does not come out of my mouth afterwards. But in Church of the Christ, that really doesn't make that big of a difference because the sweet little ladies will correct the pitch by like the second word. Okay, but by the time I hit the third word, some glad morning, I realized what I had forgotten. That this audience was almost entirely Baptist and that unless a guitarist walked through that door, they were happy to let me serenade them with the sweet nothings of I'll fly away. And as I sang that song, that impromptu solo of I'll Fly Away, that impromptu funeral, the only thing I could think of was how much I was looking forward to that day when this glad morning, when that life is o'er. If, as I thought on that day, Christ's or Paul's words occur to you in a situation like that, um, well, let me read them to you. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. Not to encourage you in a moment like that. If those words are true, then an impromptu solo of I'll fly away at an impromptu funeral is not only silly and painful, it's pretty tragic. The only thing that got me through that solo And I've got a mansion just over the hilltop was the promise, the confidence that indeed Jesus did not stay dead. I preached that day 
on the very next verses from 1 Corinthians 15, right after these words from Paul, you've probably heard them at funerals before, 1 Corinthians 15, 20, and following. But the words before verse 20 are not nearly as comforting. In fact, they're pretty discomforting. They make you pretty uncomfortable. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 and 12. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there's no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we've testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. And then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are, of all people, most to be pitied. Hmm. I remember my grandfather's hand shaking. I don't remember much else about that day, but I remember his hand shaking as he grasped that little tin container and lowered it into the little hole that we had dug in the ground I saw his hand shaking as he lowered his wife and my grandmother's ashes into the ground. don't remember anything he said, just his hand shaking. Now, if you had read these words to me on that day, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost, I might have, I mean, I would have been really mad. These words in that moment are not very comforting. In fact, it makes us wonder, at least it makes me wonder, why would Paul write them at all? Why would Paul waste ink to create a little doubt? Yeah, we get it, Paul. If Christ wasn't raised from the dead, then we're not going to be raised either. And if Christ wasn't raised from the dead, then our loved ones aren't going to be raised. Yeah, we get it, Paul. Why are you rubbing it in our face, man? We, we get it. It's kind of mean. Makes me a little bit mad at Paul. And if that's how this text makes you feel, then I bet the odds are that you know how it feels to lose somebody. You know what that hole inside of you feels like. You feel it every day. You know what it's like to not see the world the same ever again, every morning. It looks different. It's tinted differently. You know what it's like to be lonely angry and abandoned. And these words, when we hear them, make us want to shake Paul and say, tell us it happened. These words make us realize that the resurrection of Jesus Christ, when a man who was dead walked out of his tomb, is not just something to get, but it is something that we are deeply, deeply committed to. It's only in these moments when the world has been ripped from us that we are helped That we are saved by knowing that Jesus did not stay dead. 
It's only then when we're dealing with that kind of loss, which every one of you is dealt with or is going to deal with, it's only then that we realize we need the resurrection. It's not just something to get. It is something that we need. We need it in every part of our life, at every level of our being. These words, they just make us want to shake Paul and say, tell us that it happened. And I think Paul realized that it's only when our uncertainty about the resurrection of Jesus, runs headlong into desperation, the desperation caused by loss. When that uncertainty and that desperation collide, that we understand we need the resurrection. Or to put it another way, I think it's only then that we can understand what it would have been like to live on this Saturday between Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Good Friday, of course, the day when Jesus was crucified on a cross and breathed his last breath. And Easter Sunday, the day when he walked out of that tomb. But there's that Saturday in the middle. And 2,000 years removed from Good Friday and Easter Sunday makes that Saturday just about evaporate, right? There is just no time between Good Friday and Easter Sunday 2,000 years later But if we had been there on that Saturday, I think it would have felt like an eternity. Do you get what just happened? Jesus just died. The Son of God is dead. What have we been doing all these years? If he does not walk out of that tomb tomorrow, then we are done for. And our loved ones, when they're gone... They're gone. There's no hope. That hole in my heart's never going to be mended. The world's never going to be right. The tent will never be removed. On Saturday, you have this uncertainty and desperation, and they just collide, and suddenly, resurrection isn't something to get. It is something we desperately need. Paul's words, they take us to Saturday. The loss of people we love, it takes us to Saturday. When you're standing in hospice care or in a hospital room, it feels like Saturday. And try as you might, you go to sleep on Saturday and all you can dream about are Paul's words. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, you're still in your sins. And those who have fallen asleep in Christ, they're lost. And if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of most people to be pitied. And then it's Sunday. You wake up. And the nightmare of Saturday is gone. And Paul's tone has changed. You wake up and Paul says, don't worry. Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. Christ has indeed been raised. Speaking of fruit, I have some apples with me here today. That's because Paul uses this farming metaphor that, well, I'm not a farmer, so it's hard for me to understand. In fact, everything I've ever planted has died. For our one-year anniversary, I built Lindsay this custom planter's box. And by custom, I mean it was like two two-by-sixes nailed together. And I hung it off of our porch, and I, you know, like, beat my chest. Ah, I am man. Hear me roar. You know, I said, look, I love you. See these flowers. Planted these purple, white, yellow flowers. A week later, those things were dead. I mean... They were dead dead, like crispy dead. But I do love her, I promise. Anyways, I've got this fruit here, 
And uh, these apples, and just like flowers, I don't know a lot about apples, but I do know one thing. And that is that as an apple ripens, it goes from green to red. Um, I looked it up on the internet. It must be true. And assuming that people, that these apples got enough water that year and that they get enough sunshine, then every green apple is eventually going to turn to a red one and it'll be ready to eat. But there is this possibility that something could have gone wrong. There's this possibility that the tree is sick. Uh, this possibility that there was a freeze too late in the year. And so there is this period of waiting for the apple farmer every year. There's this period where the apple farmer every year goes out to his apple trees and he checks them. Look at that. I didn't lose one. Apple farmer goes out to his trees during this period every year and he looks at his tree every day. He comes back and reports, apple still green? Yep. Still green. Goes out the next day. Apple's still green? Yep. They're still green. But then one day, the apple farmer goes out to his tree and there is a red apple. And to us, that may not seem like a big deal. But for the apple farmer, it's a big deal. Because this apple, this red apple, the first of his harvest to ripen is his first fruit. And for the farmer, this is cause to celebrate because this one apple, the first fruit of his harvest, is an indicator that eventually all of these green apples are going to be red. A process has been started at that point that cannot be stopped. And that first apple is a signal that eventually all of those green apples are going to be ripened, are going to be red, are going to be ready to eat. It's a process that cannot be stopped once he sees that first fruit. Okay. Now let's read what Paul says next. 1 Corinthians 15, 20. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn. Christ the first fruits, and then when he comes... Those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom uh, to God, the father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be defeated, to be destroyed, is death. For he has put everything under his feet. Now, when it says everything he has put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself, who put everything under Christ. And when he has done this, then the son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him so that God may be all in all. Makes a little more sense now, doesn't it? We get a little bit better what Paul is doing here. First, he took us to Saturday. He took us to Saturday, this day we didn't want to go to, the day where the farmer goes out and he checks his tree. Are the apples still green? Yep, they're still green. Paul took us to Saturday, that day after Good Friday, when we've got uncertainty and desperation, and they collide. But then, then he takes us to Sunday. And on Sunday, the tomb is empty, and there's Jesus. The first fruits have ripened. God wouldn't allow death to keep its grip on him. The harvest has begun. A power has been unleashed in the world. And Jesus may have died in the past. He may have been buried in the past. 
that he is resurrected then, he is resurrected now, and will be resurrected forever. I mean, that's the power of resurrection. It's a power that cannot be stopped. Just like all of these apples are going to turn to red apples, the power of resurrection is proof that all of those, because of Jesus, who have died, are going to be resurrected who belong to him. There is no stopping it. And everything that's trying to keep that from happening, every power of evil and death and wickedness will be destroyed because as it happens, God is like super good at resurrection. So, I'll tell you. Some of you feel like you're stuck on Saturday. Some of you feel like you've been stuck on Saturday for a long time. And I'll tell you, I know what it's like to feel that way. I know what it's like to hurt, to lose somebody, to have that hole inside of you. And I've got good news for you. It's not Saturday. It's Sunday. And it's never going to be Saturday again. It's Sunday. Jesus is raised. He was raised, is raised, and will be raised Forever. And it's Sunday, and that is a beautiful thing. Tomorrow's going to be Sunday. The next day is going to be Sunday. It's never going to be Saturday again. Now, I'm not telling you that losing somebody's not going to hurt. It's going to hurt really bad. Um, you know, it, in fact, that hurt is, a, is probably a good thing because it's a sign that they've left this permanent mark on you. And that mark is a testament to the life this person lived. So it's going to hurt. I can't tell you it's not going to hurt. But let me minister to you for a second. Because someday I'm going to need you to minister to me. And I'm going to need you to tell me what I'm about to tell you. I'm sorry. I'm really sorry. I'm sorry that the last enemy to be defeated is death. Why that's not the first enemy I don't know. If I was choosing, it would have been first. I'm sorry. But here's one thing I know. God did not let Jesus stay dead because he cares too much about the person you've lost to let them stay that way. Their story is not over. And your story is not over. God knew we needed resurrection, so he did it, he does it, and he's going to do it forever. Okay. Now I want us to look at what Paul says next. Because what he says next is not really what we're expecting. And he has spent all this energy convincing us that indeed Jesus was raised from the dead and that those who belong to Jesus are going to be raised as well. So, then he says this. Now, if there is no resurrection, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized for them? If you buy me lunch sometime, I'll explain that verse to you. We don't have time to talk about it. I'd love to talk with you about it. We're, we're going to keep moving on. And as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour if Christ has not been raised from the dead? I face death every day. Yet, just as surely as I boast about you in Christ Jesus our Lord, I, if I fought wild beasts in Ephesus with no more than human hopes, what have I gained? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Don't be misled. 
Bad company corrupts good character. Come back to your senses as you ought. Stop sinning. For there are some who are ignorant of God, and I say this to your shame. Now, this might seem like an afterthought to you, right? Okay, he spent all of this time convincing us that Jesus was raised and that if we die, we too are raised. So what does our life have to do with this? Or what does the way we live have to do with this? Surely this stuff, resurrection, is a lot more important than what I do on a daily basis. And that's not the case in this passage. In fact, the whole text in 1 Corinthians fifteen twelve to 34 is moving towards this one point. He says... Some of you don't think resurrection happens, but I promise Jesus was raised. And because Jesus was raised, those who belong to Jesus are going to be raised. So here's the deal. Why would anyone who knows they are going to be raised live like a dead person? So why would anyone who knows they are going to be raised live like they're dead? Live like a resurrected person. I'll tell you a story. In the youth group, I've told you all this story before. Don't give it away. Um, In the 1940s, there was this polio epidemic that swept across America and a lot of places. Polio is this really crippling disease. And some of you adults and kids, some of your parents have the vaccine scar on their shoulder from polio. But in the 1940s, early 1940s, a vaccine had not yet been discovered for polio. And this virus, this disease just spread across America, killing thousands. And it was particularly severe for children, for young people. It hit them particularly hard. And polio did not spare this one little town of Rocky Ford, Colorado, where there was this little eight-year-old girl, Bernie, who got sick one day. And her mom took her to the doctor, and the doctor ran some tests, and it was polio. And before they ever got to go home, the doctor took Bernie from her mom and put her in this room, quarantine. And there was this little glass window, and her mom, every day, Bernie's mom, every day, would come to that glass window and look in and see Bernie, couldn't touch her for months. Bernie was sick. so I mean, she was laying in bed, couldn't get up. Uh, the doctor told Bernie's mom, Bernie is going to die. But she didn't. So then the doctor said, Bernie's never going to walk again. She's going to be paralyzed. But she did walk again. Then the doctor said, well, Bernie's never going to have children. And then she had four. And one of those is my mom. And my mom would tell you the story about growing up and and this memory that's ingrained into her mind. And they were walking into the theater and she was walking behind her mom. She was in high school. She was walking behind her mom, who I call Nanny. And she looked, and it was the first time, my mom was in high school, it was the first time that she noticed as she watched her kind of labored legs go up those steps, it was the first time that she realized that her mom was handicapped. This was 30-plus years after Bernie had gotten polio. The first time. That's, like, that's the kind of vibrant life that she lived, this kind of refusal to let these shackles of polio stop her from living life. My mom would tell you about the ways, in many ways, that Nanny shaped her faith. And I could tell you the stories about the way she shaped mine. Now, Nanny had tasted death in polio. She tasted it. But she'd been given this new life. She'd been resurrected, in a sense. Now, she still bore the marks of death. She wore braces 
till the day she died. But she lived like she didn't have those marks. She got the chance to experience resurrection in a way that not all of us do. And she decided to live that way, to live like a resurrected person. Now, if you had asked my grandma, would you rather go back to quarantine or be a mom and a grandma? Which do you think she'd have chosen? Right. It's obvious. Right. There's no way she'd go back to quarantine knowing how sweet life is. And Paul says, exactly. Why would anybody who knows how the story ends with resurrection willingly live like a dead person? Live like you're resurrected. Start now. Be pure. Be obedient. Be radically obedient. Give your life for Jesus. Don't waste your time. Be fiercely, fiercely obedient and loving. Do these things that dead people don't do. Because all of those who belong to Jesus are going to be raised with him. He is the first fruit, and it's proof that a process has been started that can't be stopped. So why wait till you die to start living? And you might say, Eric, isn't Nanny the grandmother who you watched your grandfather bury her ashes? She died. I say, yeah. But you don't get it. She lives. And she just decided to start living a long time before she died. And not all of us do that. I want to do it. And I want you to do it. I want Highland to do that. To live like resurrected people. And if that's something that you want to do, we want to walk alongside you in doing that at this church. If you want to take on the Lord in baptism... If you want to give your life to God and experience what it's like to be resurrected now in this life, I want you to do it. I want you to come forward. I'd love to talk with you. I'd love to study with you if that's what you want to do. If you want to come and pray about something, we've got elders in the back. We'll have ministers up here, elders in the sides. I hope you'll go seek them out and pray with them. It's time to start living like live people. Let's worship, Rishan. When peace like a river attendeth my